conclude today uh, the book of Hosea, Divine Faithfulness, the Promise of Hosea. This uh, crystal clear account of a man who loves a woman who becomes a prostitute and the heartbreaking of that is parallel to the fact that Israel has prostituted themselves and has defied their God and their husband in a spiritual sense. And so God's heart is going after his people, and unfortunately there is no change. This must have, uh, this must have been the same kind of heart that Hosea had for his wife Gomer, as day after day she is out and about, and he's praying and hoping that there is some kind of change. He's looking for the day. Perhaps he's waiting at the window or waiting by the phone, hoping to get the call that things have, things have turned around. They're no longer going to continue in the same path that her heart has been broken over her sin. And she's going to return to her husband. This is the same with the nation of Israel. They continue in this pattern of sin. And you would think at one point there would be change. We can't take this anymore. We're, we're going to stop being stuck in this awful pattern. Listen, there are, there are people who are stuck in patterns of sin. And for whatever reason, they don't become unstuck. Perhaps somebody says, well, I've been doing this so long. I can never get back to where I was. It's all hopeless. I'm going to just continue in the path in which I'm going. I'm going to just remain unchanged. There's a lot of hopelessness in our society. You take God out of the equation, people just say, this is just the way things are. They're never going to change. They're just going to continue on. There's people who continue on in this, this, this lifestyle, and they say, I know it's wrong. No, I shouldn't be doing it, but there's no, there's no change of heart. There's no real breaking of the heart. There's a mental knowledge that something is off or perhaps something is not quite right. But the chains are not broken. And the person just continues on. Perhaps they even have a, a good spurt for just a little while. They say, well, I'm going to turn things around for a, a little bit. I'm going to get back to temple in the Old Testament. I'm going to get back. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to, I'm going to move back toward him. And then a week later, everything changes back to the same old pattern of sin. I'm going to get to church this week. I'm really going to get to church this week. Things are going to change and then all of a sudden, it's back to the same old pattern. There are people who let whole years go by, decades go by with no change. Just stuck. You meet them at 20, they're the same as at 25. And, 
as that 30 and 35. And some people just remain stuck in this unchanging pattern. And you would think with Israel that there would be change. Change. Let's stop this sin. Let's stop this monstrosity. Let's stop this breaking the law against God. Let's change our hearts. Let's get back to Him. That's what you think the heart would be. And it's not. No change. No movement. No breaking of the heart. No softening. Continual stiff neck. I'm not, I'm not going to change. This is the way I am. And some people just flat out love their rebellion. And other people Satan just has in this cycle of shame and guilt where they just say, I'm never ever going to get out. They're never going to get out. And so with that mindset and that heart, they just continue on. They just continue on. Day after day, month after month, no breakage. The heart remains ice cold, ice cold. And this is exactly what is going on in chapter 10. Notice with me chapter 10, verse 9. As the days of Gibeah, some translations here have from the days of Gibeah. You have sinned, O Israel. You would think that there was some connection here between Israel and Gibeah. Israel is the northern kingdom, and yet Gibeah ended up being in the south. They were a town in the tribe of of Benjamin, so there's this connection here, and we go, well, what is going on? It seems better to say, as the days of Gibeah. God is comparing Israel here to the sin that took place, to the sins that happened in Gibeah. You say, well, are we sure? We might want to translate this as as instead of from. It kind of lightens the connection between Israel and the south. Look over at chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. What happened in Gibeah? Judges chapter 19. This guy has this concubine. And they end up in the city of Gibeah, this town of Benjamin. Much like Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of the town, the young men of the town, see what is going on, see this stranger. They come to the house of the old man. And they knock on the door. And they say, let us, uh, let us in. Bring this stranger out to us. Bring this man out to us. That we may know him. Now that knowing him was not that we could sit down and have a cup of tea and get to know him. The knowing him was let us rape him in a homosexual manner. Let us have our way with him. Thrust him out to us, and we're going to sleep with him 
all night. All of us are going to use and abuse him. Instead of doing that, he says, well, the old man says, well, I have a daughter. And we also have this man's concubine. So they decide to send out the concubine. Real brave men. So they send her out. This awful picture, Judges 19. And all night long they use, the scripture says, and abuse her. Till at the morning she is crawling towards the door with her hand on the threshold. Finally, when light comes, they open up the door and they find her dead. And so the man whose concubine it is puts her on his donkey. And he wants to wake up the people of Israel to this horrible atrocity. But they're hard-hearted. You think they would do something. We should be outraged over sin. Outraged over sin in the land. We should be saying, something is wrong here. Something is wrong when two men can say, it's okay to send out this woman and these men and this brother tribe of ours are able to use and abuse her all night long and nobody does anything. Nobody's concerned. No outrage. Just goes on and so she is used. What do you do to jar a people like that that are so desensitized to sin? They're so used to it. They see it all the time. They see it in movies, they see it in TV. What do you do to a group of people that is so hardened to this kind of sin? Well, you chop her up into 12 bits. You chop her up into 12 pieces and you scatter her to the different tribes to show what has been going on, to try to wake them up. And God is now saying hundreds of years later, through the prophet Hosea to Israel, you're like Gibeah. You persist in the vile and the obscene, but you won't change. You just continue. You think at some part point your heart would be broken, that your heart would be torn, that you would go, it's me, Lord, I, I need forgiveness, Lord, clean me up. You, you think that would happen at some point where... Israel would say, we're in need of redemption, we're in need of healing, we're in need of a Savior, we've run away from God, we're so sorry for our sin. You would think that at some point there would be some kind of need for healing. There was indeed a need for healing. You'd think that there would be a crying out for it. And yet God says to them, you won't change. You've been doing this since Gibeah. You have just been hardening your heart, continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again. Listen, listen carefully here today. Be careful. Be careful of undealt with patterns of sin. Be careful of undealt with patterns of sin. Sin that says, I'm going to just keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. 
and I'm not going to change. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to deal with it. Listen, it's the it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. So when we begin to see something in our life that isn't quite right, we need to kill it at the very beginning. We see something in our life that is sinful, and it might not be a big deal. People might even say, well, that's not a big deal. Everybody sins. It's just a, it's a minor sin. It's a little sin. And so we begin to overlook it, and it's like a child. That little sin grows. Year one, it's, it's little and it's small. And then all of a sudden, year five, it's a little bit bigger. Then all of a sudden you get to year 15, 16, and that thing has become a monster. This thing is uncontrollable. That sin is not able to be controlled. Deal with sin when it can still be dealt with. Who is it here that is dealing with things in their life and they go, I've let that go for far too long. The Lord's been speaking to my heart, but I've been too proud. I've been dealing with that thing, and yet I've seen it, and yet I've been letting it grow. And it's been like this unruly weed that just continues to grow, continues to grow, continues to grow. And the Lord is saying here through the prophet Hosea, he is saying that Israel is like Gibeah, that they persist in this without repentance that they continue in it, that there is no change. And not only is there no change, they're not moved to help. They're not moved when they see injustice. They're not moved. Their hearts don't care when they see something that is so terrible like this sin. They kind of go, well, I mean, it's bad, but we've seen worse in the movies. I guess it's bad. We've seen, we've seen worse on TV. We see this stuff all the time. How hardened have we become when we see this stuff over and over in our lives and we begin to accept it? It just becomes the norm. And the question is, what is, what is it going to take us? What is it going to take to shake us and to get us moved about sin in our own lives? We often talk about all the social sins that are out there, all of the wrong evils in our country, and rightly so. We should be outraged at the at the immorality in our nation. But are we outraged at our own lack of holiness in our own lives? Do we really take it to heart what Hebrews says, that without holiness, no one, no man, no woman, no child will see the Lord? That the fruit of a person who has been really changed from the heart is the fact that they have a changed life that it's very easy to sit and bemoan all the things that we're seeing all the time and go, oh, isn't that awful? Isn't that awful? But are we actually moved? Have we actually got into the place where we're saying, Lord, would you deal with my own sin? Lord, would you, would you lay me bare before you? God, would you show me patterns of things that I've been doing or things that I've been accepting in my own life that perhaps I'm too proud to simply say, God, forgive me and cleanse me. First John chapter 1, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. And so we come down and we say, Lord, help us. Lord, we're not going to continue in this pattern of sin. We don't want to be like 
Israel. We don't want to have it said of us, that person never changed. They never changed. Look at uh, verse, verse 10. He says this, verse 10 of chapter 10. When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Now commentators have guessed, what is the double iniquity? What is the sin that they have com uh, committed that would, that would uh, render double judgment? Well, we see here they persist in their sin, and they're not moved to help. That would be double sin requiring double judgment. Notice verse 1 of chapter 10 goes even deeper to what the problem is here. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. So God is saying things are going good in Israel. You would think that as things continue to get better, that people would worship God more. That they would say, Lord, thank you for all the blessings you've given to us. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for the meals. Thank you for the clothing. Thank you for the shelter. But the scripture says here it's the exact opposite. The more they increase, the more they worship false gods. The more God gives them, the more blessings he pours out into their lives, the harder they get. In fact, he nails the problem here in verse 2. He says their heart is false. They have wrong thinking. They have wrong convictions. They have wrong motives. When God changes us, he doesn't just change behavior. To the thief, he doesn't just say, okay, you need to stop stealing. He tells us to stop stealing. But he wants us to have a changed heart where he says to the thief, not only don't steal, but don't want to steal. Get to a place in your life where your heart is changed, where you go, I know stealing is wrong. I think it's wrong. I'm convinced now, whereas before, the person used to make excuses. Well, I need this, and my family is stuck, or whatever the case may be. No, no, a person gets to the point in their life where they say, no, I recognize, I'm convinced my heart has been wrong. And it's not until we get to the point of where we say, Lord, I've been thinking wrong. My motives have been wrong. Lord, change my heart. Lord, change the way I really think. Change my convictions. My convictions have been wrong. Lord, I don't want to just have behavior modification. Lord, that will only last so long. Because like Lot's wife, I'll be going along with it, but really I'll be looking back saying, oh, I wish I could go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. There's this longing in the heart. But when God comes and he changes us, oh yes, he changes our behavior, but that's secondary. The first thing that the Lord changes and deals with is our heart. He gets to the root of the matter. He gets to the heart of the problem so that we really change. And no longer do we want the things that are sin. We may still at times struggle and have temptations, but in the bottom of our heart we go, no, Lord, I don't want that anymore. God changed my heart, and this was the problem with Israel. Their heart wasn't changed. God wasn't just saying, you need to change your behavior. He was saying, it's your heart. Your heart is far from me. Gomer, your heart is far from Hosea. That's the problem here. 
It's not just go back and live with your husband while you're still longing for all of the other lovers. Oh, look at them on Facebook and let's have relationships with them. I'm still at home, but I despise this. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the heart must change. Where Gomer no longer says, this is what I'm going after, other lovers. But I find my love in God. I find my love in Christ Jesus. And when our heart changes, everything changes. Everything changes. Has your heart changed? Has your heart changed? Have you gotten to the place where you really love God? Where you want to do his will? I was reading something recently about Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said with, with church membership that far too often we just ask questions that people are able to answer with answers from something they've simply memorized. Do you believe Jesus is God? Yes. Do you believe that we're saved by grace through faith alone? Absolutely, yes, I believe that. What would you say if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you in heaven? I would say, I would say it's because of Jesus Christ and what he did for me, all right answers. But it goes beyond that. Listen, have you ever experienced him? Has he ever changed you from the inside out? Have you ever gotten to the place in your life where you say, Lord, I've known all these things, but God, it's never really been my heart. I've never really had a heart change. The answer to that is to get on our knees alone with God and to pray it out until we know him. To say, God, today, I've heard with my ears, but Lord, I really want to wrestle with this thing because I want my heart changed. And I recognize that Christianity isn't just about knowing the right answers. There's going to be a lot of people know the right answers in hell. But according to what you're saying here in Hosea chapter 10, Lord, you want true change. You want the heart to be changed. You want me to be truly converted from the inside. God, give me a longing for you. Give me a desire for you. But they wouldn't change. There was no heartbreaking. There was no desire to come to him. You would think, well, what is God's response to all of this? He's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. If we want to know Hosea's response, we would say, what would be your response to Gomer? His heart was breaking. We say, well, that's a man. That's Hosea. That's his heart. But God's heart doesn't really break. Does it really break? Does God really have emotions? Does he really desire for us to come to him? Look with me at chapter 11, verse 8. Chapter 11, verse 8. He says this. This is this heartbroken God speaking. He says, how can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim, this is uh, synonymous with Israel, the leading tribe of Israel the younger son of Joseph. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? This is the Lord wrestling with this. His heart is breaking at the lack of change of heart, hardness of heart, no breaking, just continually, day after day, following their sin, and God is standing there, and he's saying, my heart breaks over you. It's interesting, it's always the people that aren't dealing with the thing, that their hearts are breaking for people whose hearts should be breaking. And so God is here and he's saying, how can I give you up? 
You must be, you must be disciplined for your sin. There, there must come an end to this whole thing, but I, I don't want to send you into exile, but yet that is what I'm going to have to do. God is wrestling in himself. This is God speaking. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. So he says, eventually I'm going to restore you. This is not going to be the final word. But in many ways for Israel, it is too late. She has made her bed. She has laid down in it, and she refuses to change. And so God is saying to her, I've, I've pled with you. Like a parent says to a child, my heart breaks over you. I, I long for you to be restored. I want you to know God. This is what God is saying to Israel. I want you to know me. My heart breaks over what you're doing. I don't want to see you. Reap the consequences of your own sins. This is not a malicious God. This is a, a good God, a kind God. And yet he says, this is the end. I am going to send you into exile, although finally, in the end, I will bring you back and I will, I will someday again restore you. That restoration they are still waiting for, which will come during the millennium. But he sent them away. Assyria came and scattered the ten northern tribes. And even though Hosea is preaching predominantly here to the northern kingdom, he now turns to the southern kingdom. There's some hope here. It's like an older brother or an older sister who has gone wayward. So God has been talking to the older brother, or he's been talking to the older sister, and he has been saying to them, please turn. Turn from your heart, change, rend your, rend your heart, come after me. And that older sibling has said, no, 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 no. And then God turns to the younger sister, or he turns to the younger brother, and he says to them, what about you? Are, are you going to follow the same path? This, this older one has taken this path. The, the northern kingdom has taken this path. Are you going to follow suit? Are you going to go in the same path that they have gone in? We see that happening even in families where one has influence over a younger and the older one takes a certain path and it's only a matter of time and we begin to see the younger one follow in the same path or the same pattern. And our hearts break and God's heart is breaking. He is, he is, he is looking at Israel, and then he looks at Judah, and he says, what about you? Reminds us of Peter in the New Testament, where everybody is deserting Christ. He has, he has thousands of people following him. He's able to draw massive crowds. All of his healings, all the things that he is doing, people love seeing him. He has now fed the 5,000. There are crowds that are following him, and he finally gives them a hard teaching. 
And he talks about him being the bread of life in John chapter 6. And as soon as he gives a hard teaching to the crowds, they don't like Jesus anymore. They all desert him. And he turns to Peter and he says to Peter, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to leave me too? That's kind of what is going on here. God is looking at Israel and he's saying, Israel has left. And now he's looking at Judah, the southern kingdom, and he's saying to Judah, Judah, are you also going to leave me as well? Are you going to follow down this same path of rebellion? For some, they have already made their decision and there's no turning back. They've said, this is the path I'm taking it. I'm taking it and I'm not changing. I am hardened and this is the way I am going. I am standing resolute in this path. And there are other people, they're looking right now, they're at a fork in the road. They're at a fork in the road. They're looking at big brother and they're looking at big sister. And they're saying to, to, to themselves, I could take that path or I could take a different path. I could take the path of heart going after God. There are people right now here today in this room. You're being confronted. It's not too late. And you're being confronted. You have seen other people. They have made decisions in their life. They have not changed, and some of them have died like that. They have just said, this is the path we're taking. This is the path we're going in, and we are not going to change. And yet for you, you're now at a pivotal moment in your history, in your personal life, where God is saying this. God is saying this to you. It's not too late. Change is still possible. It's still possible even today. And the question is, are you going to make the choice to say, yes, Lord? Yes, Lord. Listen, change is possible. Somebody here needs to hear that today. Somebody here needs to hear that. Change is possible. You say, well, I've always been this way. The pattern has always been this way. It's never going to change. Listen, and the devil is lying in your ear and he's saying to you, you're the northern kingdom. It's too late. You're Israel. It's just all, it's just you've, you've made your decision and you've already gone with it and the die has been cast and that's just the way it is. And yet the Lord would speak in your heart today and he would say, no, 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 no. You're not Israel. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You're Judah. You're Judah. And you have the opportunity, the Lord is confronting you right now with the opportunity to make you into the man or woman of God that you've always dreamed of being. You've always wanted to be a man of God. It's still possible. He said, I've always wanted to be a woman of God. It's still possible. Today's the day. You say, well, what happens here? Well, look with me at what happens with Judah. He's talking to Judah. He's turned from Israel. He's now speaking to Judah. Verse 2 of chapter 12, it says this, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. So here he has gone from the northern kingdom, and he's now talking to the southern kingdom. He says, I will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Now, he's comparing now Jacob with Esau. He's talking about Jacob. Jacob was the younger twin. 
He says this, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, this is when Jacob became a man, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. Hosea is lifting this up as a right example of what we're to do. What are you to do, Judah? You're to wrestle with God. You're to wrestle with them. Israel say, no, don't even need them. Do the whole religious thing. I'm fine with that. Fine with going to the temple. I'm okay with that. But no wrestling with God. No me personally dealing and wrestling. Striving with God. Working these things out with him. Caring about holiness. Caring about the things that he cares about. And God is saying to Judah, remember Jacob. Remember him and all the evil things that he had done in his life. And yet he was a man of God. And he brings this up as an example because he wrestled with God. He said, Lord, I'm going to wrestle with you. He actually wrestled with God. The angel of the Lord came. One point it says here he wrestled with an angel. We know that this was actually a theophany here, an appearance of God, because it says he wrestled with God. So here, here he is. He's wrestling with God. And he's saying, no. He's scared to death. He's about to meet his brother Esau. He thinks he might be killed, and he thinks his wives might be killed and his servants. So if you read this in Genesis, he is, he is sending out uh, different dispatchments of people and animals ahead of him. So, so this, this part of the caravan will meet Esau, and then this part of the caravan eventually gets down to his servants. It gets down to Leah, his, his least favorite wife, has a couple of wives. That's a problem. That's always a problem when you have a couple of wives. If, if you say, hey, this is my wife. You know, so and so, and the son says, "Oh, that nice." Oh, and this is my other wife, so and so. That's usually not a good thing. And he also had two two handmaidens that has twelve children from them. So he's sending out this this caravan and different dispatchments. He's scared to death, full of fear. And the last person he's going to send is Rachel, his his beloved wife. So here he is, he is, he's full of fear, he's scared to death, Genesis 32. And that night, the Lord comes to him as he's wrestling with all of his fears. And he has to work this out with God. Listen, you can't work this stuff out with your best friend. You can't. You can't work it out with this person or that person. Oh, yes, friends are wonderful. We need, the, we need as, as uh, believers, we need the family of Christ. We're a family. But there are things that you have to wrestle out yourself with the Lord. You have to wrestle with the Lord. And so here he is. He's wrestling. He has, he has a choice to make. Is he going to go back? Or is he going to keep moving forward? Is he going to go back or is he going to keep moving forward? And all night he's wrestling. And he finally tells the Lord, listen, Lord, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
God wants men and women here in this church and abroad, anybody who's listening to this, to say, I'm going to get alone with God, and I'm going to wrestle with God. I'm going to wrestle with him. And I'm not going to let go of God. You say, can we make that claim on God? Yes, because it's in the Bible. I'm not going to let go of God. I'm not going to let go of him until he blesses me. So God is, God is giving two different paths here. He has given the, the path of Israel. He has given here the path of Judah. Unfortunately, Israel is headed toward death. Go with me to chapter 13 now. Chapter 13. We're going to close here. Chapter 13. Ephraim, that is Israel. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. At one point, he had listened to God when he was young. Now he was not listening to God. He had trembled at God's voice. He no longer trembled. He was exalted in Israel but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Israel was already dead. They were already dead. So God is going to bring judgment in on Israel, but they had already died. That was the problem. It's like Adam. He had already died in sin, and yet he continued to live for hundreds of years. How can somebody continue to live when they've already died? Well, they've died Spiritually, death isn't just physical, it's also spiritual. And so the question is, Israel has died. Judah is on the brink of trying to figure out what they're going to do. We know their choice later on. This seems like the very end. Death seems like it. I mean, if somebody dies, that's all there is. Death, that's the end. So is there any hope with death? Look at verse 14 of chapter 13. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, that is, the place of the dead? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Does this sound familiar? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. If you flip over there, compassion is hidden from my eyes, that verse ends. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 55, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. This is a direct quote from Hosea 13, 14. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death seems like the end. But according here to this text, looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is the one who conquers death. Now Hosea in closing, if you go back to 14, chapter 14, What are we to do? What are we to do? The promise more powerful than death. Here it is, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will no more say our God to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. Then God promises this, 
I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God says this. God says the only hope for death is that there is one more powerful than death, because death, in our view, is so final. There has to be one more powerful than death that can actually kill death. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this world to put an end to the final curse of sin, and that is death. The wages of sin is death. And in Christ, he put to death, death, so that anyone who turns to him and repents, repents. And says, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm not just coming to you now with a formality. But Lord, I'm really coming to you from my heart. Change me. No longer will I pursue other lovers, other gods, other idols. God, I'm coming to be yours. You have a right. You have complete claim to my life. And Lord, I surrender to you. Would you stand with me as we close in, in prayer? Father, we ask you today that that would be our heart. That we get to, we would get to the place, oh God, where we say you have total claim over my life. Lord, we ask you that you would change us. Lord, perhaps we are here and, and there's at least one who says, I need to wrestle with God this week. I need to wrestle with God. Lord, there are people in this congregation who are saying, this is a moment where God is calling to me and I still hear his voice and it's a moment of reckoning. If you're standing here and you just say, the Lord is speaking to me that I really need to wrestle with him about some things in my own life. There are patterns perhaps perhaps are at that small little stage and you're saying I've got to nip them in the bud by God's grace before they grow. Perhaps they've grown bigger but you're still saying the Lord is my shepherd. I know he's here to heal me and I need to wrestle with him until I hear him say you're blessed. The need to wrestle with God alone, just to be with the Lord alone, to wrestle with him until these things are resolved. If that's you, would you raise your hand? That's me. I need to I need to deal with some things. I need to wrestle with the Lord. Anyone else? Anyone else? I need to wrestle with the Lord. I need to wrestle with the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Pray that your name would be blessed today. Your name would be honored. Your name would be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.